following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hey, good morning, Sacred City Moline. Pastor Sam here. Uh, I hope this video finds you well, your family's healthy. I've been praying for you in that regard. But, but even more so, I've been praying that you're just still reveling in the joy of the resurrection as we've come off of Resurrection Sunday. I miss you guys like something fierce. And it helps a little bit as I'm sitting here in an empty room. I look out and I see the pews are filled with these hearts that have people's names in them. Like I think everybody from every missional community is represented in the room. Um, and so it helps at least to I see your name on the heart. I kind of picture your face that I'm actually preaching to you. I can, I can kind of hear your interaction with me in my head. I can hear AJ's laugh when I say something kind of funny. Uh, and so that's helpful to, to navigate through this very weird medium that we're working through here. Uh, and it just makes me long for the day when we'll be together once again. And, and I hope that it's coming soon. Um, I'll, I'll keep you guys posted as soon as we know anything more. Um, but, but, but I'm just longing for that day where we can be together in the flesh. And this is what we're working with for now. So whether Sacred City Church is your home church um, or you just happen to be tuning into this video, let me welcome you uh, as we enter into our, our sermon for today. To all who are weary and long for rest, to those who mourn and long for comfort, to all the skeptics who are searching for truth, to those who feel anxious and that inner toiling in your heart and desire to have rest, to those who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need a savior, and to anybody else who will open up this video feed, this church offers her welcome in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let us turn together uh, to Colossians chapter 2. As we take a look at our passage, I'll read it. I hope you read along with me. Why don't you go ahead and stand again like we did last week. This is Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts, and teaching, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray and we will move into this this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace to us that you gave us breath this morning, that we could give you back that breath in worship, that we would 
humble ourselves underneath the authority of your word, that we would long to get a taste of Jesus once again this morning as you meet us in this text. I pray, Father, that you would think through my mind and and use my vocal cords. God, that I would be an instrument for you. Um, I I pray, God, that, that, that what I bring to the table would not be based on anything that I do, but, but solely and totally upon the work of Christ in me, the calling he's placed on my life. And so would you open up our ears to hear as if it is you, God, who is speaking to us. And would you soften our hearts to receive whatever message you'd have, God, and quicken our hands to walk in your ways. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. If you've been around Sacred City at all for any amount of time, Um, you've probably picked up on the reality that we are unapologetically about Jesus, right? We we, we say that all of life is for the gospel, that that there's not one single spot in our everyday life where Jesus doesn't step into and claim his lordship over. Um, And and we say that Jesus is is so so grand and we give him our worship and we live our lives for him, not just because he's sufficient in in the matter of salvation, right, In, in making us right with God, but in all of our life, that all of our life is to be placed underneath of his lordship, that all of life is to be lived for the glory of Jesus. And so in this regard, Jesus is more than just a Sunday thing. When all of our life revolves around Jesus, we gain a, the most robust expression of our existence. When all of our life revolves around the gospel, it creates a gospel-saturated person, somebody who is rooted in the truth of God's word and his promises, somebody who is resilient through life's storms and trials, somebody who even in the midst of, of danger is hopeful. And if you take a couple of these gospel-saturated people and you compile them together and you put them in the same place, it creates a gospel-centered community, or in other words, it creates the church. And the church is meant to be this this body of believers, people um, who demonstrate really the beauty of the gospel, where there's this sense of of warmth and love, where where people are inviting and accepting of one another, where compassion is just on full blast all of the time, where we are for goodness and doing justice. The church is meant to be a place of thriving, of of inexpressible joy and peace. In other words, as Jesus says, the the church is really the light of the world. This is Jesus who is the light saying that the church is the light of the world, that, that the church is meant to be an outpost for the kingdom of God, a city on a hill. Something that, that encapsulates all of the beauty of Jesus and demonstrates it to the watching world. But for many of us, that hasn't been our experience with the church. In fact, there's a lot of cases where it's been very far from that. Um, in some cases, it seems that the church is, is more toxic than it is functional, right? More, more toxic than it is helpful. And it's, in some regards, some experiences have been it's just like a dysfunctional social club. Right? People get together and, and pat each other on the back and think that they're doing all really great stuff. And, and it's even worse if you've been in a, an environment like that and you've experienced betrayal or hurt or rejection. And what we're meant to do, like you experience rejection and, and betrayal and hurt like that, are, we're meant to recoil from that. We're, we're meant to pull away. And so if you've experienced that, you, you've, 
you've probably now adopted this mentality that I'm just gonna keep my distance from the church. Like even, even before any of these social mandates were put in place, it's like I'm just gonna keep everybody at six foot distance, especially those churchy people. But the question is, what, what causes this disconnect between what the church is meant to be and, and what some of us have experienced of church? What's the reason that the church has such an impaired bill of health? And a lot of times I get up here behind the pulpit and I talk about how the culture has influenced us in, in, in detrimental ways, right? We point the finger at the culture and our society saying, like we can almost put the blame on some of those things, um, but, but in no way can we put the blame on society for the church's problems. In fact, the worse society becomes, the darker our surroundings are, the brighter the church is meant to shine. And so what's causing this dysfunction in the church is an internal problem that's embedded like a cancer. And if we were to put the church under and do a spiritual CT scan, we'd be able to identify the problem. The cancer is nothing more than religion. Now some people tend to think that religion and Jesus are synonymous, that, that it's, it's one and the same. But that's not how the Bible views it. In fact, it's, it's very far from what Scripture tells us. In fact, this passage that we're at today in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23 shows us that there's a vast difference between Jesus and religion. And this passage is gonna help us to catalog some of the symptoms, some of, of the, the dysfunction that's going on in the church. It's gonna be able to trace it down to the root, the core thing that's wrong, and then offer a way to be restored back to health so that the church, this church, can be the thriving beauty she's meant to be. And so we're gonna jump in at verse 16 where our passage begins and start working through this passage so far in this, in this study of Colossians. This is the longest section of scripture that we've taken a look at here. I think there's, what is it, seven, seven or eight verses. Um, and so let's take a look here as we look at verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, Bible reading 101, whenever there is a therefore, that, that word is meant to invoke everything that's been said before. So, so when, when Paul says therefore here in verse 16, he, he's trying to jog our memory back to everything that he's said so far in chapters one and two of this letter to the Colossians. And so far, if I were to sum it up, I don't have time to re-preach every sermon that we've, we've gone through over the last several weeks, um, but if I were to just summarize, in fact, you can go and, and check some of those sermons out on podcasts or the video feeds that we've been pumping out. Um, but if I were to just briefly summarize what Paul's been saying um, through chapters one and two, he, he's been establishing the status of those who have put in their faith in Jesus. Okay, so, so what he's saying is that if you are a Christian, you belong to God. That you've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints, that you've been delivered from the domain of darkness where, where the powers of Satan and sin and death were once at work exercising their grip over you. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. 
And in doing so, we, we find ourselves under the lordship, under the power and the authority uh, of Jesus. And, and with that, sin's power has been disarmed, and now there's a new power that's at work in us, that is Christ in us, the hope of glory that's working. See, this is all part of, of Paul's big picture of the gospel. This is what it means that Christ came, lived the perfect life, died a sinner's death for us in our place. This is what we receive. And because that is our Christian reality, when, we, when our faith is in Jesus Christ, Paul says, don't let anyone convince you otherwise. That's why he says in, in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. In verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you. He, he's saying like there, there are people out there that are talking at you that are wanting to, to persuade you otherwise that you don't belong to God or there's something standing in your way of belonging to God. He say, don't listen to those. We need to be careful here because Paul's not saying don't listen to anyone. He's not saying block your ears and, and make it so nobody's voice can get into you. Nobody can speak into your life. He's not saying that you don't need others, that you don't need somebody to, to, to address you and to speak to you and to lead you in a certain way. What he is saying here is the reality that there are people who don't have your best interests in mind. So, so guard your, your ears from them, but there are other people in your life, in the church, that are for you. What Paul shows us here in verse 19 as we go through this passage shows Christianity isn't just a me and Jesus thing. It's not me and Jesus tucked away somewhere in my prayer closet where I'm just reading my Bible and I'm hearing straight from God, which you should be doing that. You should be reading your Bible, you should be praying, you should be listening to God, but that's not all Christianity is. That, that Paul talks about in the gospel, we have received allies, brothers and sisters who are for us, that like us, who are holding fast to Jesus, they too are holding fast to him. That, that, that as they hold fast to him, as we hold fast to him, we are nourished, that we are knit together, and that we grow together as the body of Christ. Right, this body of Christ is, is the church, right? The church community, the gospel community. These are imperfect people, right? You could even say recovering sinners who are helping one another cling to a perfect savior. They, they, these brothers and sisters, these allies that we receive in the gospel want us, are, are encouraging us to keep our lives in line with the gospel truth. And, and, and if there's ever been a time where that's, been like the most necessary, it's times like this, when, when we can't be together in the flesh. Like times when we're split apart, and so we, we need one another. We need the body of Christ. We need to be joined together in whatever way we can so that we can encourage one another, so that we can support one another. And, and that even to the sense where we can face the ugly without having people run away. Or, or in other words, we can confront one another as we're in sin not in a way to tear down, not in a way to, to, to elevate ourselves over and be superior to one another because they sin in this way and I don't. Rather, we confront one another in sin to show each other that more grace is available, right? So that we would move in closer to Jesus. See, this is what Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter five, verse 20. He says, where, where sin is, grace abounds all the more. And so if, if you see your brother and sister in sin, it's good for you to approach them and in a loving, to speak, with speaking truth and love, 
that, hey, I, I think you're out of line. You're out of step with the gospel. Remember this truth and then be brought back in. Jesus paid for your sin that you can be brought in, right? That's, that's what loving brothers and sisters do. And it's being in this gospel-saturated community. When we're in a gospel culture where flourishing happens, where, where we don't have to posture and pretend, but we can actually admit our faults and confess our sins and cling to Christ, and in that we grow. And verse 19 says that the body grows with a growth from God. See, these are the people that our ears should be open to. Right? We, we, don't, we don't close our ears down to everybody. Our ears are open to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are for us, who love us, who want to see us walk and be more like Jesus. And so if anything, Paul is saying, be selective with who you're listening to. Right? I, kids are really good at this. You know, like, uh, maybe you've heard the term selective hearing. You know, I... I think it's maybe genetic because I remember my mom saying that I had selective hearing, but I found it in my kids. Whereas we sit down um, to do schoolwork now because everybody's doing homeschool stuff. Um, I, I've never heard a teacher complain, and maybe she's just being really sweet about, you know, when, when they tell my oldest to get his stuff out and we're gonna do this, you know, handwriting activity. Like not once have I ever heard something about him complaining and throwing a fit and melting down. You know, so, so in a sense, he's listening to her, but not listening to us, because when we say, all right, it's time to do this homework, has a meltdown, right? So selective hearing, they've got a lockdown. So there's a sense where we need to be selective about who we are listening to, because there are people out there, there are people even in the church who are going to say things, not out of love, not to build us up, not to see us grow, not to see us be knit together, but the opposite, to tear us down, to take away, to, to minimize us. That's what religious people do. They, they don't act like allies, or they might even, they might have a facade of being an ally. Oh, I'm just saying this to help you out. But really their intentions are that of, of a rival, right? To, to compete with you, to be in competition, to, to tear you down and so they can be elevated. They, they, religious people make assessments based on your level of, of spiritual activity so that they can either uh, disqualify or dismiss or exclude you based upon what you do or do not do. Now what Paul is pointing out here in, in this passage is that this was actually happening Real time in Colossae. And actually, it was coming from two different kinds of religious people. There were the traditionalists, the, the, the people who come from a Jewish background, who were familiar with the Old Testament, all of the regulations that were prescribed in the Old Testament. Um, thing, things like here in verse 16, speaking of um, questions about food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath, right? These are all things connected to the Old Testament regulations and celebrations and sort of rituals that they had. And so these traditionalists are insisting that in order to belong to God, you've got to do this stuff. You have to engage in a certain kind of, of Christian activity. And, and part of that, you know, it's following these certain set of rules, this dogma. In verse 21, we see Paul talking about, right, they say, they say things like, 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They've got a long list of do's and don'ts, these rules that you have to follow. And some of them are pretty severe, right? In verse 23, Paul talks about being severe to the body, the severity of the body. And what he's talking there is about circumcision, which we saw last week in verse 11, right? Where people were insisting that in order to belong, you had to be marked with circumcision. And so there's the Judaizers on one side, maybe on the more conservative side of the spectrum, like these are the things, these are hoops you have to jump through. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there's another kind of religious people who are more of the progressives, the, the pagan mystics. These people are sort of new agey, they, they're into this sort of um, hyper-spirituality that, that verse 18 sort of paints a picture of. Um, he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism, on worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind. So Paul's pointing out like the, these people on the other side, they, they kind of portray this facade of hyper-spirituality. It's not actually, it's not, it doesn't even represent this sort of spiritual um, thoroughness that they have in their lives. It, it's a facade, it's not real. In fact, if anything, it's being uh, presented in a way that's self-gratifying. So, so people would look at them and, oh, that's a really spiritual person. They must have uh, tight access or have tight connection with God. They must be super, super spiritual. But, but really, it's all about image, right? The, the look, the image. But we can sort of group these two types of religious people together in the sense that they're saying, in order to belong, you've got to do this or do that. Right, or to, to belong, to prove that you're legit, you, you're gonna do these certain things or you're not gonna do these things at all. And so they have this concept of acceptance that's based on what you do, how you live. And these condescending voices haven't expired. Right? The, the condescending voices of, of religiosity live on in the church today but they've got new talking points. So like, what, what is it? What, what are those things that people use as sort of a metric of how spiritual you are or if you really belong to God or not? Well, one of them is, revolves around alcohol, right? Do you, do you drink? Now, some, some people insist that there's never any reason to drink alcohol. Right, that as Christians, we should not touch alcohol at all. And, and, and this is in spite of there not being any sort of biblical prohibition towards alcohol and using alcohol. I mean, there, there is the prohibition of not being drunk, right? That, that drunkenness is a sin. But in, in using alcohol in moderation, there's no prohibition against this. In fact, if you think about it, um, Jesus, the first miracle he did was turning water into wine. Like the Lord's Supper, the meal that we share and together, when we come together, what, what are the elements? Well, bread and wine. And so there's no prohibition against these things, but there are some Christians and denominations that demand total abstinence, right? This is, they say that this is the mark of maturity, and, and they kind of look down on anybody else who might drink or partake of alcohol in moderation and say, well, they're, they're just not spiritually put together. So there's one Area or what about festivals and holidays? Well, there's some Christians who, who are Sabbatarians, people who are very strict about the observance of the Sabbath, or, or even some other Christians 
You know, they, they, they insist on not celebrating uh, pagan holidays. Like, they would even say things like Halloween, right? Oh, that's a pagan holiday. I'm not gonna let my kids go out and get candy. Even though there's nothing, there's nothing uh, intri- intrinsically pagan about asking your neighbors for some candy, right? That that might be something that somebody gets around, or, or even, even in some bizarre situations, there are Christians who refuse to celebrate with Christmas, or even Easter, well, they say, well, those are just holidays that are, are reclaimed pagan holidays, which there is some validity to that statement. But, but Christians have plundered the Egyptians, that, that we have reclaimed, that we've redeemed some of these pagan holidays, and now that there's a truer and better meaning behind those things, and so we don't necessarily need to dismiss them. What about spiritual expression? Well, there, there are some Christians that insist that if you don't speak in tr- tongues, then you're not a Christian, right? That's like the, the ground zero for becoming a Christian is that you have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, right? And so that, that's an expression that, oh, you've got to have this in order to be, you know, a certain level of Christian or, or even there's other, you know, more, not, not so common in, in our setting, but the insistence that women need to be, have their heads covered all the time or, or be wearing dresses or have some sort of a certain attire or even, even seeing like a dress code coming to church has been sort of an an aesthetic uh, requirement for um, belonging or being part of the church. And what happens is these people who take to these views, they very quickly become judgy, right? They, They very quickly are making assessments about, you know, because you do this or because you don't hold to this, you must be a second string Christian, that you just must be spiritually immature. And so they make these dismissals and say, well, I, I, they posture themselves. Well, I've got this together and you don't, so I must be a, a level up in, in, in Jesus' pyramid scheme. I don't know if that's a thing. And I realize with some of this stuff, I'm, I might be stirring the pot, but before you get too worked up about it, because there might be some good reason that you say, listen, I don't think we should do this, right? It, and in fact, it's okay to hold some of these restrictions as a matter of personal conviction. It's okay for someone to say, listen, out of, out of my own conscience, out of my own conviction, I refrain from the use of alcohol, right? That, that's a special, that's a helpful thing. Like there's, that might be the most helpful thing if you're a recovering um, alcoholic or if you've got struggling with some sort of addiction. It might be helpful for you to lay out those boundaries for yourself to say, that's something that I'm not gonna participate in. Or even, you know, you might come from a pagan background or something and, and, and those pagan holidays might actually have meant something to you in the past and you say, well, okay, well, I don't wanna, I don't, it's too similar to what I experienced in the past. I don't wanna do that because it'll, it'll lead me down this path. Now, it's absolutely okay for you to do that. In fact, that, that's one side of Christian liberty and the freedom that we have in Christ is that, that we can refrain from doing certain things. And there are other things that we can participate in in our freedom. It's just a matter of, of Christian conscience, of what the Holy Spirit is prompting us on an individual level. The problem, however, is when we go on the, beyond the biblical directives, beyond what scripture commands of those who follow Jesus and make new rules and create new dogma and create new taboos that everyone, as a blanket statement, must operate underneath of. See, this is exactly what the religious people of Jesus' day were doing. In Mark chapter seven, Jesus speaks to them. He says that, that you leave behind the commandments of God 
and hold to the traditions of men. And so here, Jesus is saying, like, you guys are making a, a man-made religion. You're, you're either adding to, building over and beyond the, what the law of God requires, what it looks like to live morally according to God's ways, and you're adding on top of that. And so you end up with a man-made religion. And, and any time you have a man-made religion, it is counterproductive to human flourishing. I don't think, I don't think that gets asserted enough that, that any man-made religion is drastically opposed to your best life. In fact, Jesus, again, as he's talking to the Pharisees and the tax collectors, those, those religious people of his day, he, he, can, he confronts them and condemns them and says that you tie up heavy burdens and you place them on people's shoulders that they themselves can't carry and you don't even touch that burden for yourself. Right, you make all these rules, it applies to them, but it doesn't apply to you. And in doing so, Jesus says that you have shut them out of the kingdom of God. Now this is precisely the type of person that man-made religion creates. If you were to compile everything that Paul lays out in verses 16 through 23, we, we could create a profile of a religious person. And I'm just gonna warn you, it's not very flattering. Right, we look at it and you can see, well, okay, clearly they're insecure. If they have to put themselves in a place of being the judge and being critiquing of everybody else around them, they must be insecure. That, that they have this uh, unresolved affirmation inside of them that, that they have to establish some sort of exclusivity, create a circle around themselves that say, I'm in the circle and everybody else has to work in order to get inside of the circle. And so these people have a, a, a superiority complex, right? They think highly of themselves. They're, they're puffed up in this way. They're dismissive of other people. They see other people and there's no, there's no, um, there's no compassion for them. There, there's no benefit of the doubt. They just dismiss and write off and say, oh, you don't, you don't belong here. In this sense, they're, they're nitpicky. Verse 18 talks about, they're worried about aesthetics, uh, the, the appearance of things, and so that the word um, connects to the humility in the Greek, um, so they have this false humility, they're, they're portraying a false maturity, and so in the sense they're posturing, they're pretentious. Later on in verse 23, they, they says that they, they appear wise, Right? They sort of have this appearance of being spiritual or having some sort of spiritual wisdom, but they're just puffed up. Right? It, it's, all, it's all a mirage. It's an image. They're, they're really puffed up. They're arrogant. And at the core of it, they're, they're just all about themselves. It's self-gratifying. It's self-promoting. Now, if you were to take all of these characteristics that you know, a, a religious person embodies in some way, shape, or form, and you were to put that in, in a bio on social media, you would put that in your sort of like about me section on a dating app, there's nobody who's gonna be like, I wanna hang out with that person. Like nobody's gonna wanna date you if that's the sort of profile that you create for yourself. Because that type of person is undesirable, right? It, it chokes others out, it keeps them from flourishing. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus has always had a strong rebuke for religious people. Right? Jesus, he, he doesn't mince words. He looks at him and says, you're, you're being a hypocrite. Like your, your life and your expectations of others doesn't line up. 
Now, I think it's really easy for us to sit back and, oh yeah, those people, those, those people are the worst. They, you know, they drive me crazy. I don't, but listen, before you start throwing stones at those people, you have to realize that to some degree, that describes us, right? Because, because we all have some sort of requirements of, of what it means to be my friend or what it means to belong to this group. We have some sort of hoop that people have to jump through. And this is especially true if you have grown up or you've been steeped in a very churchy, religious culture where Jesus was absent, where it was all about what people do to get in. We have this tendency to deal with the shadows. See, this is what's happened here in, in this profile of the religious person. It really just shows us that that religious person is a shell of a person. And in fact, that is the only type of person that religion can produce, is this hollowed out shell of a person. Now, and then this is the reason why. It's because religion deals with the shadows, not the substance. This is what Paul points out in verse 17. He says, as he's pointing out the things that the Judaizers are expecting of people and, and the New Age mystic pagan people are expecting from other people, he says that these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. It's like, it's like eating eggshells without eating the yolk and the egg white. Right? You're, 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 you're obsessed with the shell, the, 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 the shadow of the thing, and you're neglecting the substance. Now, the shell isn't a bad thing. The shadows aren't necessarily a bad thing because they're pointing to Jesus. In fact, all of the Old Testament regulations, all of the things that God commanded his people to observe were meant to point to Jesus and sort of foreshadowing what he would accomplish, what he would do. And so there's a sense that, yeah, it, it was good. It was fitting back then, but now we have the substance that we don't need to go back to the shadow. It would be like a soldier who goes away to war, right? And, and with him, he takes a photograph of his, his bride of, or whoever he's gonna marry someday, right? And then as he's writing her, his, his dear Jane letters and receiving his dear John letters, right? And, and he has this sort of um, the, the shadow of a person. He's got this, this image of a person. And then when he comes back from war and he can be reunited with this girl that he's been writing to and, and, and obsessing about, instead of clinging to the substance of the person, he just retreats with that photograph of her instead. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And so that was what was going on is that these, these Judaizers were clinging to the shadow and instead of the substance. And now that we have Jesus, no longer are the shadows necessary. And so what, what Paul is saying is, listen, you can busy yourself with all kinds of spiritual activity, right? You, you, can, you can occupy yourselves and, and, and make use of the shadows and do so in such a way where you completely miss the substance of Jesus. And like I said, before we throw stones at these people who, who are religious and, and miss you know, miss the substance, we have to realize that's us to, to some degree. We have this tendency to deal in the shadows, 
to make our faith and our, our spiritual life a, a list of abiding by do's and don'ts and maintaining certain norms. And we tend to look at our, what, what are actually unimpressive resumes and pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, we did it. Like, look at how good I am. Look at what I've put together. Look at how, you know, we, we deceive ourselves in this sense. And in that, that's when these ugly traits rear their head. And there's a lot of times where we don't see it unless we have a brother and sister who really loves us to say, hey, you've, you've veered away from the gospel. But, but let me tell you this. Religious people aren't the only ones who deal with the shadows. There are actually unreligious religious people out there who live their lives in the shadows. Now what do I mean by that? Unreligious, so, so in a sense, these are the people who have avoided religion their whole lives. They, they've sort of seen through the facade. They've seen through, they've tried to avoid the sort of politics of, of posturing and, and being part of a group based upon your own activity. And say, well, I don't wanna be part of that, but in, in doing so, they've rejected the sort of communal group or what it's meant to be. And they start chasing the shadows, uh, trying to satisfy what their hearts were made for. Right? It's sort of like Peter Pan, always chasing his shadow, never catching it. And so it's in the same sense where unreligious religious people are living in the shadows, where they're chasing after things like intimacy with porn and sex and unhealthy relationships. You're chasing comfort through money, through health and food, right? I know I'm not the only one who's, who's getting a little bit thicker here in the midst of this quarantine life, right? All those snacks, finding comfort. Find, trying to find acceptance and value. We turn the shadows of va- vanity and success. Right? If I do well at work, well, I'll be accepted. Or if I, if I make myself look pretty, right? Then somebody will want me, they'll value me. We do this power and control, right? Looking for power and control in things like money and status, when really these are just shadows and the only place where you can find the substance, the only thing that can really satisfy what you're looking for is in the person and work of Jesus. And so you can be a religious person, right, chasing the shadows in, in religious activity or you can be an irreligious religious person chasing the shadows in anything but Jesus. But at the heart of both religious religion and non-religious religion is arrogance, right? It, the heart of it, if you get down to the core, the core defect is that we think that we can get what we want or what we need apart from God, right? In a sense, we can fill ourselves up and totally avoid God altogether. In fact, that's a, a lot of what religion is about, right? Doing what I did, kind of tipping the scales in my favor, making myself look good so I'm accepted, Right, well, if I can do that, well, I don't, I don't really need God. See, both religious religion and irreligious religion share the same core. It says, I got it. I, I don't need God. I can, I can handle this myself. And whether that's gaining appearance of piety, or, which might be like stopping the indulgence of the flesh, right? Because there are sinful things that everybody knows, oh, you don't do that because that's an extra sinful thing or if it's trying to satisfy the deepest human longings that are implanted in us 
Paul says in verse 23 that these shadows are of no value. Right? These things can't deliver. The shadows aren't meant to satisfy us. What's meant to satisfy us is only Jesus. See, that's true Christianity. That's true gospel faith is that everything that I need, everything that I've been longing for is found in Jesus, in his person and work. And so it's here in Christ, in Jesus, that you find the substance you're looking for. It's not in rules, not in following rules, not in, not in sort of keeping, uh, maintaining certain concepts. It's in a, in a personal relationship with Jesus. See, this is what the key di- difference that, that Paul says here between those who are religious, right? The, the religious, relig- the, the religious, religious, or the irreligious, religious, I don't know, it's getting confusing here. The key difference between religion and gospel is that we are fastened, that we hold fast to Jesus. He he talks about this right here um, at the end of uh, verse 19. They're not holding fast to the head, is what he says. But on the contrary, if if you're a gospel person, right, Faith in Jesus means holding fast, having this relationship, this this deeply rooted, connected relationship with the head who is Jesus, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and it grows with a growth that is from God. See, this isn't a man-made religion. This uh, This is faith from God that he has given to us that we would hold fast to Jesus in every regard. So that's the key difference between Christianity and religion. Christianity, true faith, is relationship with Jesus and knowing that Jesus has fulfilled every single requirement there is for you to belong to God. That he lived the sinless life that you couldn't live. That he died a sinner's death that that we had to die in order to pay off our sins. He did that for us that he was judged and rejected in our place. And by, by putting our faith in him, now we are qualified to belong. See, that's all you need. And so we see here that Jesus, he didn't just come to save us from our sin. Yes, he did. But Jesus came to save people from a destructive life of religion and irreligious religion. See, Jesus, with faith in him, there's no, there's no need to, to jump through extra hoops. He, he's, he's shouldered the load for us, right? In fact, he says, take my yoke upon you. It's, it's, a, it's easy and it's light. And Jesus, he satisfies our deepest longings. He liberates us from being attached and chasing those shadows. And in doing so, he transforms us from peoples who lived in the shadow to being people of substance, people who hold fast. And as we hold fast, we draw nutrients from Jesus. They were sustained, and, and in being sustained, we now flourish. Now, this is what makes the new humanity. This is what makes the church the church. It's when the, the, the religion and its ugliness is replaced with the beauty of the gospel. Instead of, instead of being an exclusive place with, with high fences, the church is warm and inviting. Instead of, instead of being people who are puffed up and, and arrogant, we're we are humble. 
Instead of being judgy and condescending, we offer grace and our compassion. Instead of posturing ourselves and trying to make ourselves look more pious and, and holy than we really are, we confess our sins freely. Right? In fact, we can confess our sins to our worst enemy because what fear is there? Instead of being concerned with the appearance of spirituality, we're, we're more concerned with the inside-out growth that God brings. Instead of being rivals to one another, we're allies. Instead of being self-gratifying, we're Jesus-exalting people. Instead of feeling insecure and, and just being wrapped up in our own insecurities, we can now say, I am secure in Christ. And out of joy now, not out of obligation, not out of sort of some sort of prerequisites to acceptance, but out of joy, we say, Lord, I, I surrender my life to you. I, I'm going to live the way that you want me to be because before I, I was obedient, I was accepted. See, that's the gospel. Religion says, obey, then you're accepted. The gospel says, you're accepted, therefore you're free to obey. But only Jesus can transform us in this way. Only Jesus can bring about this kind of flourishing. So let us hold fast to Jesus. Let us cling to him. See, the last thing the Quad City needs is another Jesusless religious institution. And th there's a lot of churches, not, not just in our city, but, but in this world that, that have the appearance of, oh, this is about Jesus. But in reality, it's, it's not. It's just another religious institution where Christ has left the building. And, and our, our, our city certainly doesn't need a Jesusless religious institution in the midst of a pandemic, right? There, there are already enough hoops for us to jump through. We don't need another burden added up upon us that we have to jump through these certain spiritual hoops in order to gain God's acceptance. In fact, we can say Jesus has jumped through every hoop for you, that you are loved. See, what the Quad City needs is the real Jesus. What the Quad City needs are, are genuine gospel people, right, who understand the love of Christ in such a profound way, who accept people at their worst and love them to their best because that's exactly what Jesus does with us. Be a church that, that points people to having a meaningful relationship with the God of the universe, the true substance, the God who won't exclude anyone who trusts in Christ. In fact, he freely welcomes and spreads his arms wide to even the most religious sinners. And so church, let us repent. Let us put aside Christless religion. Let us cut out the cancer. And so that the only thing that's on our resume is Jesus. That it's Jesus Christ and him crucified the only thing that we can claim. And it's, it's this, that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My Rock of Ages talks about um, uh, the only thing that I cling to is the cross. That's all we have. And that's enough. Because Jesus is greater than religion. Father, we thank you for Jesus in every way fulfilling the law, every way fulfilling the, the, the payment that was due for our sins, that we would be forgiven, that we would be welcomed and embraced, that we would be loved and brought into your family. God, help us to know 
through the spirit who lives inside of us that the gospel that we cling to, the Jesus that we love is working. He's bringing us together even as we're separated, knitting us together and he's growing us. As the church, the church is becoming more beautiful, that the church is expanding, that more and more people are hearing of this gospel and putting their faith in Jesus. And I pray, Father, for those who are sitting there this morning who might be in that spot for the first time, they're ready to leave behind religion and to trust you, God. I pray that you would extend your welcome to them, that their faith would be firmly cemented in Jesus, that they would enjoy a new relationship with him. God, we ask this in your mighty name. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Love you guys. We will see you here next week.